Peace and blessings be upon you. Welcome to the Ta'lif Podcast, a space where we aim to provide content and connect our spiritual hearts with community, love, service, and prophetic wisdom. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Innal hamda lillahi nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nastaghfiruhu wa nastahdih. ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا فمن يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله ثم ما بعده السلام عليكم ورحمه الله uh, this book يا ايها الولد ودير بلاف سان is special because when someone attains mastery at a given body of knowledge they understand the formalities of that discipline but they also understand the realities of that discipline so if you see someone that has attained a level of mastery at something yes you can sit in a class with them and they can give you formal instruction but what you would really benefit from is being able to go to lunch with them being able to just sit and have an informal conversation with them so that they could explain to you this body of knowledge they mastered in terms that they would use in a barbershop or terms she would use in a beauty salon or the way they would talk about this discipline they mastered sitting uh, at a dinner party So here Imam Ghazali is talking to this student that has studied to a, to an to a very advanced level but he's talking to him now in very easy to understand very practical very comprehensive terms so he begins bismillahir rahmanir rahim ba'du masailik some of your questions min hadha al-qabil and this references the previous chapter some of your questions are those questions that you can't just really provide easy answers to them they are things that can only be known through the wuk through to the wuk through tasting wa amma al ba'd alladhi yastaqimu lahu al jawab as for those questions that can be answered faqad dhakarnahu fi ihya ihya al ulum we have mentioned them in the ihya ulum al din which is like the magnum opus of Imam Ghazali right he says wa nadhkuruhu wa nadhkuruhuna nubadhan min wa nushiru he said everything that we're issuing here these are just like fragments these are just scattered pieces of what we've already mentioned in the ihya ulum ad-din he says as for your first question that you asked me what is required of a spiritual traveler now i want you to pay attention here he says amma lisalik what is required for the spiritual traveler now all of us whether we identify as so or not we are spiritual wayfarers we are spiritual travelers that the journey from birth to death is a journey of the spirit now i was watching this lecture and this uh christian lecture posed the question to everybody present he said How many of you believe that we have souls? And everybody raised their hands. And he said no. We are souls, we have bodies. Right? Reconfiguring their outlook, meaning no, you were actually a soul before you had a body. So the journey of the body, being born, growing, if Allah wills, attaining old age, going back in your years this is the secondary journey the first journey is the journey of the soul the journey of the spirit the mustalah the term for that 
in classical Islam was always suluk, suluk. And the one who traverses the path, she was known as a salika, or he was known as a salik, the one traversing, the one journeying spiritually. So the question is, the one traveling the spiritual path, what is it that she absolutely needs? What is it that he absolutely needs? And Imam Ghazali is about to summarize the needs of the spiritual aspirant, the spiritual traveler, the spiritual wayfarer to four essential things. And we're going to spend some time talking about all four of them. The first thing he mentions, i'tiqadun sahihun, sound belief. To believe in God as God actually is. Now here, it is worth pointing out that aqidah in our community can either be a source of great controversy and contention or a source of great clarity and spiritual elevation. You actually can look at someone studying aqidah and you can determine whether or not the study is producing its fruit by looking at what they're becoming. If the person is becoming more devoted, if the person is becoming more prayerful, if the person is increasing in taqwa, then they are studying theology correctly. But if the person is becoming more argumentative, if the person is becoming more quarrelsome, if the person is becoming more arrogant, then they are studying aqidah incorrectly. It is very important that we know who our Lord is. But this does not necessitate um, uh, an in-depth knowledge of every, all of the ilahiyat. You don't have to study in-depth everything about Allah's divinity. Certain things we believe, we believe them as dogma. I know, dogma is a bad word in the 21st century. If you say that something is dogmatic, or you say that a person believes in these dogmas, it means what? They believe in these things without being able to rationally or logically justify why they believe in these things. Now, for those of us that need systemic theology, systematic theology, excuse me, MashaAllah, Islam has produced deep, comprehensive schools of systematic theology, right? We have the Ash'aris, the Ash'aira, we have the Maturidis, right? These are the schools that make up the mainstream of Ahl-Sunnah. Even before that, you had the Mu'tazila. Some people question whether or not they should be included among Ahl-Sunnah. Then you have the Hanabila, right? The traditionalists. But for most of us, these theological debates are superfluous. These are not things that in our context give us any trouble. And we should thank Allah for that. We live in a context, if someone sits with you for a good hour, two hours, teaches you aqidah tahawiyah, the aqidah of Imam Tahawi, this is what Muslims believe in concerning God. Many of us can walk away from that two-hour session with clarity. MashaAllah. Alhamdulillah. Do you have any questions? MashaAllah. Right? This is the time that we live in, and we should be thankful. Now, if you are someone who desires deeper knowledge, or certain things produce for you questions or doubts, then there is uh, a field of theological study for you. But if you are not, one such person, and rather you are someone that, if we say to you, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala descends in the last third of the night, seeking to answer the prayers of any man or woman calling upon him, and you are not prompted to say, how does God descend? How is the creator of time and space in a space? How does the creator of time and space experience time? What do you mean the last third of the night? 
You just say, Alhamdulillah. You know, there's a famous statement or a famous story that in the time of uh, the time that Sayyidina Omar was the Khalifa, a man came up to him as Sayyidina Omar was resting on his cane. And he said, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, I have some doubts in my mind about Allah. And the story goes, Sayyidina Omar took his cane and hit the man on the head. And he said, how are your doubts now? And the man said, wallahi, they're all gone. <laughs> right? You know, some people, mashallah, they're very simple people. I remember when I was in uh, Egypt, I was in Cairo, and I was learning about, uh, you know, basic theology, books like that. And they were talking about and ta'atil, making God like his creatures and stripping God of his attributes. And I was talking with my uh, late wife, Allah yurhamuha, and I was trying to explain to her tashbih or anthropomorphism, making God like his creatures. And she said, what is anthropomorphism? I said, to liken God to things that God has created. She said, what's wrong with that? I said, mashallah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? She said, what's wrong with that? Right? It didn't even occur to her that something like that was problematic. I said, well, you know, tanazzallah. You know, Allah is removed from having a likeness to his creation. Right? He is unlike anything you can conceive of. She said, oh, yeah, of course. Right? Some people, mashallah, they're simple in that way. Other people require a little more explanation, a little more in-depth uh, um, exploration of theology. However, it is very important that we believe in God as God is. You know, we spoke last week about people who say, you know, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Right? I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Now, first off, you must respect their recognition that a merely material explanation of our existence is not satisfactory. I'm not satisfied with that. They acknowledge a metaphysical dimension to life. However, they have no access to believing in God, how God actually is without revelation, right? The end, and this is one of the reasons that revelation is always described as descending, it comes down because the intellect cannot rise to a correct conception of what God is. I don't care how intelligent you are, right? This is actually one of the meanings in the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at the end of Surah Al-Kaf, when Allah ta'ala says, if all of the seas were ink, right? And all of the trees were quill pens, that ink would be exhausted before the words of my Lord. This also means that if you thought for a thousand years and you could exhaust every word in your vocabulary, even if you had an expansive vocabulary, you would never accurately sum up or capture what God is because this exceeds your capacity. This would exhaust you. This is why the easiest thing for you to do is to accept revelation. This is God's self-disclosure. God is telling you, this is how I am. This is how you are to worship me. This is how you are to speak of me. And we should be content with that. Thank you. Because I would have never arrived at that by the strength of my own intellect or the vividness of my own creativity, right? So this is what we mean by to believe in God as God really is. The next thing he mentions, and make sure that your belief contains no innovation. Now, innovation, let me explain. In most things, innovation is a good thing. 
again, human beings have an almost unlimited ability to restore, renew, and create ex nihilo, just to create from scratch. But when it comes to belief in God and worship in God, our creativity has a very limited role in that, right? Our creativity does have a role, but it has a limited role in that. And when your creativity exceeds its boundary, this is referred to in Islamic law as bid'ah, an unwarranted, unsubstantiated, unacceptable innovation in our religion. So that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam has shown us, has exemplified for us Salat al-Maghrib, which we are going to pray momentarily, is three cycles of prayer. It is an unwarranted innovation if somebody says, why do three? We should do five. Now the Prophet has already shown you how to do this. He's already shown, you, you, don't, you don't need to, you know, I was thinking, you know, Salat al-Fajr is so short, but I have more time in the morning than I do in the evening. Why only pray two units of prayer? Let's pray seven. Now this is a bit, you don't have to do that, right? And it also involves not saying things about God for which you have no right. In the Quran, we read over and over, they say things about Allah, Bila Sultan. They haven't been given the right to say that. You know, we are a tradition of idhan, permission. You know, the thing that the Prophet ﷺ said concerning himself, I only speak about God, that which God has given me permission to speak about. I don't just get up and make this stuff up, right? And it's difficult because we live in a time in which we want to make Islam relevant. So we might hear people talking about metaphysics in a way or hear them talking about spirituality in a way. And we're like, okay, how can we use that language to get young Muslims more interested in Islam? And I respect the effort, but we still have to be careful. We can't say something that, like we have no authority to say that, right? So if somebody says, you know, making the prayer, is really like a, a kind of mindfulness with God. So even if you don't make wudu, even if you don't face the direction of prayer, even if you don't actually perform the ritual prayer in its prescribed form, as long as you sit thinking about God, this is the equivalent of prayer. SubhanAllah. I respect the, the, um, the, 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 what I think is a sincere desire to make Islam accessible to people, but we don't have any right to say that. We can't actually say that. We can't say, you know, as long as you think about God, you don't really have to pray. It's okay. We don't have the, I don't have the authority to say that. As much as I would like to relieve Muslims of the guilt they feel at not performing their prayers regularly, it is our obligation to tell people, no, even if you miss your prayers, you have to make them up, right? You have to make them up, even if you miss them, right? We can't just give you permission. Oh, don't worry about it. As long as you think about God, it's okay. This is what he's, this is what he's referring to. That, that, that your belief does not include these kinds of innovations. And um, um, subhanAllah, it's difficult to remain free of innovation because we live in a context that is enamored with the idea of progress, right? We believe that what, whatever comes next is always better than the thing that came before it, right? We're calibrated in that way. If you have studied at an American college or university, especially in the human sciences, you've been calibrated to believe whatever comes next is better. Sometimes you're articulating that belief and you don't even know you're articulating it. So when you say something like, 
She, she was ahead of her time. What does that statement mean? He was before his time. What does that, Khaled, what does that mean? He was before his time. It means that they were doing something that people would eventually catch up to because the world is always changing for the better. Whereas we actually believe that in religious and moral matters, not technological innovation or new types of political configuration or new kinds of artistic and aesthetic. No, in all of that, of course, there can be progress. Right? Even politically, there can be progress. But religiously and morally, the Prophet ﷺ said, the best generation is my generation. Then those who come after them and those who come after them. That we believe that the pinnacle of human religious expression occurred in the life of the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. And that the goal of every righteous woman and man after him should be what? Emulating him. So part of our religious tradition involves actively and voluntarily going back. You know, I was telling someone that the Prophet ﷺ said in an authentic hadith, inna In the body, there is a lump of flesh. In salahat, salah al-jasadu kullu. If that lump of flesh is sound, if that lump of flesh is pure, the entire human being, she is pure. He is pure. Is it not the qalb? Is it anything other than the heart? Yeah, I was thinking about the implications of this hadith. This hadith means that every act of friendship that you see, Every act of love, every act of care, every act of humanity, every act of beauty that you see, it first emanates where? From a human heart. And similarly, every act of barbarity, every act of unrequired violence, every act of harshness, every act of cruelty, it also comes from a human heart. And then I was thinking, every human being from our father and mother, Adam and Eve, until the present has had a human heart. That means that the challenge of being a good woman, the challenge of being a good man, this is a perennial challenge. Everybody has endured this challenge. And until the day of judgment, everybody will endure this challenge. And if you somehow think that the challenge is easier for me because I was born in 2022, or none of us were born in 2022, or, but because I was alive in 2022, it just made me more moral. I was morally more mature than the people of the past. The crazy ideas they had about Things like race and gender and sexuality. And, you know, we're just more evolved than them. I always think to myself, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? No way. Only because the challenge they had of being good people in their societal context, this is the same challenge you have. The only difference is that because you're reading history, you can look at them and see their moral failures around issues of class and race and war and peace and gender and sexual. You can see their more. It's much more difficult for you to see your own. But 200 years from now, people will be reading about us and they will see our moral failures because the challenge of being good people is a perennial challenge. It's always there. So looking to the past to learn, how did they confront that challenge? This is, this is what a wise person does. Imam Ghazali continues, وَالثَّانِي تَوْبَةٌ نَصُوحٌ 
sincere repentance. You know, I was asking one of my teachers, what is the most important thing to teach my children about Islam? I said, man, what? If I can teach my children one thing about Islam, what should it be? He said, teach them the virtue of repentance. Because we will inevitably make mistakes. All of the children of Adam make mistakes. We will inevitably commit sins. But sincere repentance removes sin. You know, repentance is like a mimha. It's like an eraser. And the Prophet وسلم, said, Inni astaghfirullah sab'een marra kulla yawm wa sab'een marra yawmiyan aw kaman qala alayhi sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The Prophet alayhi sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, I seek the forgiveness of God 70 times a day, which really means an innumerable amount of times. And if you are someone that believes that you have nothing to repent for, repent for that. Right? I always say the nadir, the low point of American public life, the most shocking and outrageous thing I have ever heard said by any American public figure was not a presidential candidate bragging about sexually assaulting women. That was horrible. That was unthinkable. But the same presidential candidate being asked, do you ever repent? And responding, for what? I never do anything wrong. I couldn't, I couldn't, like I was really, when people say like flabbergasted, when people say like their mouth was like a gape, he said they, they, they were interviewing then presidential candidate, Donald Trump, and they said, are you religious? He said, yes, I'm Presbyterian. They said a few more questions about his religious upbringing. Then the question was posed, do you ever repent? He said, repent? For what? I never do anything wrong. I was just reminded of the saying, as you are, so are those given authority over you. We had a president that said, I never repent because I never do anything wrong. That's like psychopathic. I, ne I never do anything wrong? In the commentary of this book, three kinds of toba are mentioned. And I want you to pay very close attention to these three kinds of toba. You have the toba of the awam, people like me. This is repentance from actual wrong action. When you do something wrong, you ask God to forgive you, right? When you do something wrong, when you do something wrong, you ask God to forgive you. And you ask God to forgive you while fulfilling the requisite conditions of repentance. The first is nedim, that you're, you're remorseful. Oh, I shouldn't have done that, right? You feel something. If you are taking pride in something that you've done wrong, your repentance cannot be sincere because you're proud. So if you post a picture on Instagram of you doing something wrong, and then you cry to God in your prayer, and then you check to see how many likes you have. No, 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 that can't, that, that's impossible, right? Shame, you know, I realize because shame can be abused, you know, um, and shame has been abused. I think as a culture, 
We've gone to the opposite extreme that don't feel any shame about anything you do. No, 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 no. Guilt is to the soul as pain, physical pain is to the body. If you mistreat someone and you feel some guilt about that, you should go and mend fences. You should go and repair the relationship. The guilt is the indication that mm, I probably shouldn't have spoken to her like that. I probably shouldn't have spoken to him like that. When that person uh, overheard me talking about my party and they asked me if I was having a party and I looked at them like, I probably shouldn't have done that. That's why you feel the guilt. Shame, on the other hand, is I've done something that if people I respect knew that I did it, I would, I would be, I would be uh, ashamed. You know, the Prophet Sallallahu said, Al-ithmu mahaka fi sadrika wa taqrahu an nasu and you would dislike that people learned about it. I was sitting in a session like this and I was sitting with Will Caldwell, Dr. Will Caldwell. And I remember him saying distinctly, whenever we talk about shame and guilt, it is important to distinguish between reputation and validation. Reputation is your concern for what people you don't even know, know about you. You're, that's your reputation, meaning my rep, people that I don't even know, what they think about me, that's my reputation. Only a fool is preoccupied with reputation. When they talk about me, what they're going to say, Validation, on the other hand, comes through what? What do my children say about me? What will my mother think of me? What will my neighbor say about me? What does my colleagues, right? What do, what do my colleagues say about me? What do my closest friends say about me? This is something you should be concerned about. And if you did something or you said something that the people who poured into you so that you could become you, you know, one of the things to talk about this in a, uh, an accurate way, we have to acknowledge all of us are who we are because people invested in us. There are people who taught us about kindness. There are people who taught us about generosity. There are people who taught us about hospitality. I mean, some of us, we know the people. My wife taught me about hospitality. She's from North Carolina. I'm from Chicago. I knew nothing about hospitality before I married her. There are people who taught us about every virtue we have. They took the time to show us, this is how you do this. Some of us, we know people taught us about forgiveness because they forgave us. This is how you forgive somebody. If one of those people saw us being unforgiving, one of those people saw us being stingy, one of those people saw us being poor host, if one of those people who taught us about honesty, saw us lying. Someone who taught me, look, this is how you tell the truth, even when it's more, even when it's bitter. If they saw me lying, I would be ashamed because maybe they would think, maybe I didn't teach them good enough. Maybe he learned from my bad instead of learning from my good, right? That's shame, that matters, man. And I know in some of our cultures, sharam, you know, uh, 
and and uh, um, you know Aib, you know we can use these, uh, you know indiscriminately and irresponsibly. Irresponsibly, I acknowledge that. But to feel some shame uh, before people you respect, uh, this is this is this is healthy for personal growth and development. To say, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. This is very dangerous for personal development. No, you should care what your mother thinks about you. If your mother thinks, what a jerk. You should care. If your mom thinks you're a jerk, you should care about that, right? If your mom thinks you're a, a, a loser, you should care about that, right? Because I'm sure she wants to know, I didn't raise a jerk. I didn't raise a loser, right? The second condition of toba is tawakkuf. You actually have to stop doing what it is you're doing, right? You can't repent and then persist in wrong action. Not possible. It's like, Ah oh, man, I should. I know I shouldn't be smoking weed, man. The stock fit a lot. Stock fit a lot. Why too boy? Like, nah, you gotta, you gotta put that out. You gotta put that out. Nah, stock fit a lot, man. You gotta put that out. You gotta pour the drink out. Third condition of repentance: if you have committed a wrong action, you promise never to return to the wrong action, right? You can't make toba temporary, like you can't make a temporary toba if you want it to be sincere. You can't say like, hey man, I'm not gonna drink this summer. But as soon as we hit October, I'm back rolling. No, you can't, you can't, you can't do that. It's like, you know, it's like, I'm going to stop talking about people behind uh, their backs, except at parties. Because if we didn't talk about people at parties, what would we have to talk about? I know like, you can't do that. Just, I'm, I'm done, I quit. And then the last thing, if you've wronged someone or you've, you've hurt someone, you have to go and you have to repair the relationship. This is the repentance of regular people. Then you have the repentance of the khawas, the special people. They repent not only from their wrong actions, but even from their bad thoughts. Even though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not judge us according to our bad thoughts. Only what we, only our, you know, uh, acting on those thoughts. Some people, even the thought. So maybe as I'm speaking, one of you had the thought, man, I would go up there and slap him in his face. But you didn't actually do it. MashaAllah. The khawas are people that even the thought has stuck for Allah. What is wrong with me? That it even occurred to me to go up and slap Ustaz Ubaid in his face. What is wrong with me? I, I, I won't ask you to, 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 to speak, but I know for me, I've had those bad thoughts. Like maybe somebody is talking you know, a brother or a sister, and you're just like, I can't stand him, man. <laughs> I can't stand this dude, man, really. None of you, well, like, none of you. None of you. But there's like three or four Muslims in Chicago. They're hard on my nafs. They're hard on me. They're, and I'm probably hard on them. I know I can I can feel them looking at me like but I, want, I swear man just just one good slap just one good slap that's all I need right the khawas these are people that even the thought they repent from it stuck for the law they want even their thoughts to be clean nah stuck for the I don't even want to think like that, man. I don't even want to think like that, right? And then the khawas of the khawas, the best people, they repent even when they're thinking of something that's good 
but if they're preoccupied with anything other than Allah. So they might be thinking about something halal, but if they're preoccupied with it, they're thinking about it more than they should, they say, astaghfirullah, right? I mean, I'm not even at this level yet. I don't even know why I'm teaching this. When I think about how much time I can spend talking about basketball or cars or any other frivolous thing that I enjoy. But teaching this, it reminds you there are levels to this. Some people are at a level that if they spend too much time engaged with anything other than Allah, they say, dude, I can't believe I just spent the last four hours talking about TV. Stuff in Allah. There's nothing, there's nothing haram in that. There's nothing haram in that. If the show was, you know, what if it was a good show or something like that, but some people are at that level. I do. I spent six hours talking about the NBA playoffs, man. Right? Like, I spent. Now, what's interesting is that the Prophet وسلم, is mentioned in the Shema'il that when they talked about things of the dunya, he would engage them. So he wasn't completely aloof, uh, uh, standoffish. He wasn't completely like, if they talked about, you know, camel races, he's like, right now I'm thinking about Allah. No, he could, he could, oh yeah, yeah, right? But it was never to an excess, right? There was always, you know, some dhikr mixed in with the regular umur of the dunya, right? The third thing Imam Ghazali mentions, وَالثَالِثُ إِسْتِرْضَاءُ الْخُصُومِ حَتَّى لَا يَبْقَى لِأَحَدٍ عَلَيْكَ حَقٌ Seeking to make amends with your opponents, with your enemies. This is, now we're talking about that hard work, that difficult stuff, right? That difficult stuff. That person that maybe doesn't even know that they rub you the wrong way, making sure you buy them a gift for Eid. I know people that this is, if it's somebody that really gets on their nerves, they buy them. This is the person, okay, I, just, I just wanted to get you something, right? Or this also means istirada'il khusumi, anybody, that you are wondering, I wonder if this person has anything against me, seeking atonement, seeking to make amends with them so that when you meet Allah, there is no one who has anything bad to say about you, right? Nobody can say this person harmed me, right? Thinking, now this of course, necessitates muraqaba. You have to think because some wrong that we do to people, we don't even realize we're doing it. We wrong people without even realizing that we've wronged them, right? So maybe a person is talking about you know, college acceptance and they say, oh yeah, man, I got into Illinois State, and Illinois State is a great school. My mother went to Illinois State. So it's, it's, it's a great school just by virtue of that fact alone. But if somebody else who got into, you know, a more discriminating school, a school that was harder to gain access to, said, oh, that's, I mean, that's, that's pretty good. I mean, I guess that's okay. The person you said that to might feel like, man, he really kind of took my achievement and put it in the dirt. And you might not even realize it. You might really just, oh yes, I guess, that's pretty cool. Where, 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 where did you gain acceptance? I'm going to Yale. Oh, great. Right. They might not even realize that. Right. We do things like that to people all the time. You know, I'm always worried about like traffic. It's like, sometimes I drive really fast, stuck for the lot. I shouldn't, but I drive very fast. 
Sometimes, sometimes, early, only early in the morning after Fajr, when the streets are empty, I go out and I drive very fast, right? But sometimes when I'm coming really quickly, I can see the other driver getting nervous. They don't know, should I get out of his way? Is he gonna go around me? And I always worry, I hope I'm not causing them any, like, like any stress. You know, I don't want to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on Yom Al-Qiyam and they're like, this person with his reckless driving, he was causing me so much anguish. I was so tense looking in my rear view thinking, what is he going to do? <gasps> right? And I've found myself, sometimes I'll go past them and I'll stop like, sorry, sorry. <laughs> you know, it's like, sorry, sorry. I, I didn't mean to make you nervous. I didn't mean to make you nervous. Well, like, I'm gone. We do stuff like that all the time. We're not thinking like, you know, who are we making uncomfortable? Or, you know, sometimes another bil looking at people in ways that harm them. This was a big one for me. You know, like somebody says something and you just look at them like, right? Like that look of like, please, I don't believe you. He says, you know, um, you know, we just launched this startup. Another startup? Really? But you don't say that. It's all in your look. You just look at it. That, that could hurt that person, man. Right? That could hurt that person. So anybody that you think maybe you've wronged, trying to find them and trying to seek their forgiveness. And this is more than seeking their forgiveness. Try to make them happy. Try to make them happy. Like, I want you to be like, are we good? And not walking away until I know. Like, are we good? So even like my beloved Sidi Ahmed, he called me sometimes, but I didn't return his call. So I have to do some istirudah myself. Say, oh, I'm sorry. Are we, you know. Are we good? So that dinner on me for sure. I'm gonna, you're going to keep eating until I know. Are we good? Okay, mashallah. Right? The Prophet he said, Any wrong that you do to other people, this will be darkness on the day of judgment. Then Imam Ghazali continues, he said, then gaining the knowledge of the sharia that you need to, to addi awamir Allah to practice your religion. You know, and this is the last thing he mentioned. And it's important because some of us fetishize knowledge. We make knowledge into like, have you seen this video? Did you see that video? Have you read this book? Have you read that book? Did you see the new one from so-and-so? Oh, you know, I'll give you a good uh, rule of thumb. If you want to test your sincerity, in knowledge. When you're listening to something you've heard before, do you think to yourself, Psh, I know that. Yeah, I've heard, I, I, heard I, I know that hadith. I know that ayah of Quran. I, I've heard that before. Or are you listening, assessing yourself, thinking about even though you've heard it before, where are you in relation to the ayah? Where are you now in relation to the hadith? That if you say, now some people will actually say, as you are quoting the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, man, I heard that before. I know that. It's like, tell us something we don't know. You know, I went, to, I went to a khutbah. The khutbah was about salah. It was about prayer. 
came out of Juma. Somebody asked me, what do you think of the prayer, of the, the, the sermon? I thought it was great. You know, we always need a reminder about prayer. I said, what did you think? Psst. It was, I mean, it was just, it was played out. He didn't tell us anything we didn't know. Everything he said, I've heard it already. It was played out? It was, it was played out? No, this is, this is not the way we regard uh, the knowledge of our faith, right? Our faith involves what? Incremental repetition. Learning things and repeating them until you master them. And everything you learn, the purpose of your learning, it is implementation so that you can become better and better. It's not about impressing people at dinner parties. It's not about mentioning something unprecedented so everybody says, wow, what an erudite guy. What a well-read guy. What an impressive, what a, you know, what a sophisticated woman. No, it's trying to learn so that to adi awamir Allah, so that you can actually put these things into practice. Thank you for tuning in. Please consider becoming a monthly sustainer by joining 1,000 Hearts of Ta'lif and committing to give $3 a day to keep this work coming to seekers, youth, and newcomers to Islam. Sign up today at www.ta'leefcollective.org forward slash donate. We hope you enjoyed the variety of sessions available and hope you benefit immensely. Allah bless you and Allah bless your loved ones.